0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Uh, And uh, we are switching things around just a little bit, and we're going to talk about the airport. Now, I am just back from holiday in British Columbia, and it was wonderful to see my family again after a year and a half. But the only way to describe my experience at Pearson Airport and aboard Air Canada flights is frightening. Uh, and it's funny. I've I've just uh, been on social media with somebody who is insisting that the airport is just peachy and and I don't know um what planet that person is on. Certainly terminal 1 was really I would call it a Horror show. Uh, There was no social distancing and very crowded conditions going through security at the waiting area, at the gate, and at the baggage carousels and on board where passengers can remove their masks to eat. And they can ent- eat for the entire flight if they like, which is exactly what the teenage girls beside me on the way out there did. And no one in a position of responsibility is willing to talk about this. We've made numerous requests of the Minister of Transportation, Omar Al Gabra, and he is running for re election here in the GTA as a liberal. Uh, And I noticed him liking that post about how great the airport was. Uh, Different airport, and again, not just a coincidence, it was both ways, coming and going. And no one at the Greater Toronto Airport Authority will speak about this, though they did send an email that I will quote from a bit later. I would like to give the numbers out, uh, in case you've had an experience like this at the airport. Also, if you're planning to travel, what do you think about hearing this? I was traveling domestically, and I've heard that when it comes to international flights now, it could be even worse. The numbers, 416- 3600740, three six zero zero seven forty toll- free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty and now let's bring in Martin Firestone the president of travel secure and Gabor Lukash the founder and president of air passengers rights hi thank you for joining us
2: thank you for having me okay good afternoon
1: good afternoon. Martin, uh, you have a story of uh, some clients of yours who ended up getting COVID in the airport.
3: That's the question of the day. Did they get COVID in the airport? What we do know is they had three-hour wait on a plane, and then an additional three hours when they finally got off the plane to get their bags. They Uh, had tested negative coming into the country. They were fully vaccinated. So how did this happen? And therein lies the problem that this could be just another breeding ground for future travel and future vaccines, Uh, I should say future viruses. So this is the only thing we can allude to at this point, that this waiting and waiting and waiting could be a big problem as we head closer to Christmas holidays and things like that.
1: Uh, so just give us a little detail. Uh, where were they coming from? And and what was why were they there so long?
3: Yeah, so so evidently a simple flight to like Fort Myers, Florida uh, to visit in-laws or parents and then heading back and then on the plane an announcement was made when it landed that the airport currently is now too congested in security. And unfortunately, they have to wait on the plane until they can disembark. That One hour turned into three hours, sitting on a plane, again, with people that you're not sure are fully vaccinated or not, or children for sure that aren't under the age of 12. Then they get off and have a whole other three-hour ordeal in close quarters, in a closed building with lots of people, and that's where it all starts.
1: Yeah, I mean... uh when we got to Terminal 1 at Pearson Airport, uh, the security was, uh, it was just crazy. It was completely crowded. And I know that they, they decided to check my husband's laptop, but they kind of lost it in between. And, and I mean, I couldn't even find somewhere a little ways you know, from people to, to stand. Then at the gate, it was very crowded. The lineups are crowded. It, it was, uh, and, and, um, the other thing was that, you know, we took great care to just pack carry-on bags so we could get in and out quickly. But then they tell you, oh, please check your carry-on bags. And if you're in zone eight, you know, there's not going to be any room for them. So then the carousels, we're really, really crowded with three flights on a carousel and, and uh, again, no social distancing. Gabor?
2: You know, I, I'm finding it profoundly troubling the casualty with which some people and some authorities are treating the issue of the pandemic. We are dealing still with a deadly disease that perhaps thanks to the vaccine, it may be less deadly but we don't have sufficient number of people vaccinated. And um, the overall impression I'm getting is that in not only in aviation, but other areas of life, perhaps businesses and money is becoming a consideration overriding, apparently, in the minor of decision-makers, the lives and the health of Canadians. Uh,
1: but Gabor, what, what can you tell us about the conditions of flying? I mean, I, I don't think that what I experienced was a fluke, but what is your take? Uh,
2: my personal experience, and I mind you, I flew um, two months ago. Um, when I was flying through Pearson, it was at that time in, in early July, it was quite deserted. I had lots and lots of room, and, and I personally did not experience any difficulty. Um, I was flying, mind you, to Europe, and it was just in the very, very early days. Like one of the, I, I, I got my vaccine. I'm from Nova Scotia, so I got the very first day my age group was able to get vaccine. That was when I got it. Very first day, my agent was able to get those two. I got it. So the, therefore, the very first day I was able to fly out. Two weeks after my second dose, I was on a plane and flying out. Um, but I have what you describe is, is strikes me as a common experience based on what we are reading, and uh, you know problems can happen. But it it seems that the authorities are saying, well, there's a new norm, and I don't think that should be the new norm. And um, this type of bottlenecks, it sounds are developing more. When people are coming back, when when you have to go through various tests, tests that are supposed to keep people safe, but quite possibly that crowded is created there is itself a, a risk. And
1: I mean, my view, um, from my point of view, I mean it it those those delays coming back from an overseas flight, at least in those people will know what's happening because the people are tested. But when it comes to domestic flights, which are also, I mean, they were delayed uh, probably about an hour each way uh, you know the, you don't even know because nothing is test is is uh, nothing is measured so uh, i'd like to read what i got from the GTAa the greater Toronto airports authority and again no one would speak to us about this it says quote with regard to physical distancing the government of canada now recognizes that in some areas of the airport physical distancing of two meters may not be possible in these cases The government of Canada suggests a, quote, layered approach with multiple protective measures, including mask wearing, hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette. What is that? Uh, (laughs) Toronto's Pearson Healthy Airport program employs such a layered approach. I mean, (laughs) are you kidding me, Marty? What what do you think of that?
3: I I don't think we've even scratched the surface. You think about... Who's traveling right now? Not even snowbirds have started their trek down south. But wait until Christmas holidays when families of five are starting to head down south. I can't imagine the confusion and the anger and the absolute mayhem that's going to be created, especially as as Gabor said, when when you come back, that's where, where, where the real problems are going to start. It's one thing to get out and you finally get on the plane, but now when you're coming back from this trip, all the different layers of checking for fully vaccinated, your arrived can document, and all your other scenarios, this is going to be a recipe for disaster. Uh,
1: you know, uh, and I, I'm interested in what Gabor says uh, said, because you know, my husband also traveled to Europe at the end of June, and he came back at the beginning of July, and it was fine. And that's part of the reason why I booked us to go to British Columbia at the end of August. And boy, I, it was just, I mean, frightening. Frightening is the only way to describe it. And of course, we're fully vaccinated, but you have no idea who you're sitting next to. The person next to you is practically on top of you. Um, it, it, I mean, Martin, you know, what are you going to tell your clients
3: well, they're they're asking already. I mean, the, the big confusion for us now is this land border situation. because So many of them like to drive down to the U.S., but now they're forced to get on a plane because guess what? It's okay to fly and be sardines and land in an airport and have contact, but it's not okay to be in your nice car and drive across with only just your spouse or family. So, I mean, right now there's mass confusion. But if I had to give my two cents, I'm saying in the right now, guys, flying down, especially as we get closer to December, is only going to get worse. So, I don't even have an option to tell them to drive down because they can't cross the U.S. border. So it's it's really problematic. The only other piece of advice, carry on luggage. But even you say that's problematic to some degree because nobody is going to wait to get home five bags when they get off the plane and I have to pack light and hope they can put that bag on the plane.
1: Well, well, that's what, that's what I'm saying. I mean, we were sitting in the middle of the plane, but it was zone eight for loading Yeah, and, and the, you just know there's, there's no way. And, you know, even getting them down from the thing, you get very, very close to people. Um, Gabor, what do you make of the rules for on board because, as I said you're supposed to be masked except when you're eating and you can eat for the whole flight if you like
2: well it it's a very it's a very challenging issue i mean certainly um, I, I can tell you I personally when I was flying and I was flying on a half empty plane I ate as quickly as possible i I was very lucky to have an empty row around me. Actually, asked oh. to ensure that there is a buffer around me, and they were very nice to me because the plane was empty. So they really helped people to space out themselves. Um, they uh, and it was it was um, in no no North no. Canadian, it's the a European it, airline. It's and, the opposite um,
1: now. I mean, uh, on the way out, um, it was originally in a bigger plane, and they changed the plane to a smaller plane, and it was packed to the gills, every single seat
2: and 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 that's a challenge I mean, i i get probably what i would do is i would try to you know maybe you need to sip some water if it, if it's such a length i would probably personally try to avoid eating if it is a shorter flight if it is a transatlantic flight you do have to eat and that's and there's really not much that you can do about it it's the the that's that's why on transatlantic uh, flight having pcr tests is is going to remain an essential component of of um of flying for quite a while uh, because you would like to make sure that with those who you are sharing the same air for several hours and possibly eight nine hours when you're flying in from that the likelihood of them being infected is low
1: and again gabor you know no one in a responsible position will address this what do you think of that
2: it's it's highly problematic that uh, the government is not speaking about this issue but the problem is not simply with the current government. The problem is also that it seems that uh, perhaps the whole issue of the of the treatment and, and the the safety measures around the the pandemic, including possibly a uh, vaccination mandate, have become politicized. While I view it as a simple um, uh, as a simple public health issue, where where you have to listen to the experts. Personally, I i. Very very strongly support any form of vaccine mandate for anybody uh, who for whom getting a vaccine is not as safe to risk you know there are some people who have medical issues that they cannot be vaccinated, but for, short of that, I would like to see uh, being vaccinated as a general condition for accessing flight accessing trains or even possibly getting on a bus, certainly getting to school to university to workplace to a store you know i i personally i very much value personal freedom, but I don't believe that anybody has the freedom to infect and kill other people.
1: Okay, Martin, I'm giving you the last uh, 30 seconds.
3: I think we're going to all have to have some patience here. And our next date, I think we got to watch for September 21st to see if the US opens up their border so that at least we can travel by auto across the land border. And that will ease the airport situation to a degree albeit not solve it but to a degree so that's my next date i'm on the lookout for and i am hoping although with them making the level three advisory now coming into canada and advising against it, i'm not so sure that's going to happen so we're looking for september 21st and that will tell us a lot heading into the future
1: okay thank you both martin firestone and gabor lukas thank you for thank having you very me very much for having us a- we're going to take another break. When we come back, the latest modeling numbers and what it means for all of us. Again, before we go to break, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. Yesterday at long last, Premier Doug Ford unfailed details of Ontario's much anticipated vaccine passport. It won't go into effect for another three weeks and it does not include all non-essential businesses. You will need it to eat indoors at a restaurant, go to the gym, and attend large gatherings like concerts. Customers will have to show proof of vaccination at those places, but the people working there won't, and it won't be required at hairdressers or retailers. So, We will get to the business reaction and yours in a few minutes. First up, Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Hello, Stephen. How are you?
4: I'm good, thanks, Libby. How are you?
1: Fine. So what is your reaction to this?
4: Well, look, I've been calling for a vaccine certificate now for almost two months, as I think you know, and I'm so I will say off the top, I'm encouraged that Doug Ford has now seen the light. And it's decided that Ontario, belatedly, will have a vaccine certificate. I am still really concerned, though, about a couple of things. One is that it's going to take weeks before it's fully deployed, especially the second part of what he announced yesterday, not being ready until the end of October. And I'm also concerned that there seems to be a little bit of confusion around who it will apply to and under what circumstances. All of this tells me that there wasn't enough forethought or planning done by, by Doug Ford and his government, which is a real shame because, again, not just me, all the opposition parties, leaders and stakeholders in so many critically important areas, uh, what we see in B.C. and Quebec and elsewhere, this has been, this should have been in the works for weeks, if not months, and I feel like we're scrambling in this province because Doug Ford was kind of stubborn on this one, so encouraged but still really concerned.
1: Well, he said himself he didn't want to do this, so yeah. he was obviously uh, dragged into it.
4: Yeah, which you know, again, doesn't make any sense to me. It was pretty, it was pretty clear to me, way back when. You, know, you talk to the, the individuals working in healthcare, like the Nurses Association, Registered Nurses Association, the Ontario Medical Association, uh, teachers' unions, you know, other representatives from healthcare and education. Again, what we saw in BC and Alberta, what we've seen be deployed there. It just seemed like a fairly straightforward thing to do uh, to move on this or to at least prepare for it. And that's the part that probably, I guess, drives me a little bit crazy as someone who did serve in Cabinet for four years. The fact that there was no contingency planning, there were, it doesn't seem like it anyway, no preparations made in the event that it would be required until, look, we're just days away from my daughters and many others going back to school, campuses reopening, Uh, We see a case count number in Ontario today that's just, again, a little bit scary, you know, climbing up close to 900. So all of this didn't have to occur this way, and I really wish it hadn't. I really wish Doug had just seen the light on this earlier in July and had gone on with it.
1: Okay, a couple of questions. First of all, you know, um, you and I will, will need this to dine indoors, but the people who are serving us don't have to be vaccinated.
4: Yeah. So that's when I talked about confusion a second ago, I think that's one of the ones that really sticks out from yesterday's announcement. I will tell you, and I have no proof of this. No one's told me. I think that was just an oversight on their part, which again, is not an excuse. I'm I'm not at all defending it. This is what one of those things that I think happens when you're scrambling, when you're not properly prepared and you haven't thought about all of these possibilities. My prediction is that within a couple of days before September 22nd, they will reverse themselves on that position and, and and if you're a staff person working in a restaurant, like the patrons who come to the restaurant, you'll have to be able to show your vaccine certificate. That's my prediction. And again, I don't I don't think that was I don't think they purposely set out to exclude the staff. I think they just weren't particularly competent and weren't prepared for that that question.
1: Hmm. No, I would have thought it's because a lot of people are having staffing shortages, though, I guess if there was mandatory vaccination, some people would be more willing to work. Final question, uh, Mr. Del Duca, and that is on enforcement. So the police will not be involved. It's bylaw enforcement, Uh, you know, and there isn't that much bylaw enforcement for something like this. Uh What do you make of that?
4: Well, look, I, I think most Ontarians, uh, for, well, first of all, I think most Ontarians do already have one uh, or two doses of the vaccine. So I think it's a very small percentage of the population that we need to be very focused on. We saw in British Columbia, as soon as they brought out their certificates uh, and made uh, other mandates for vaccines in certain sectors, the number of appointments jumped. I think with schools reopening next week in most of the province, some of the province they have schools open this week, and case numbers going in the wrong way. I, I have a lot of faith in the people of Ontario that they will show up in greater numbers, they will get the vaccine, and this will be okay. And I, I hope it doesn't come down to an enforcement issue. I think Ontarians want, you know, by and large to do the right thing, and we want to get through this fourth wave and get to the other side. And so I'm hopeful that this will this will be a, a an important tool to get us there.
1: Okay, Stephen Del Duca, thank you so much for being with us.
4: Thanks, Libby. You take care.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Now let's get to reaction from the business and the medical communities, and we want to hear from you. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 4740 I'd like to welcome Lindsay Broadhead, Senior Vice President, Communications and Public Affairs at the Toronto Region Board of Trade. Donna Dewar, the co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. How are you? Uh, let's begin with Lindsay Broadhead. The Board of Trade has been out in front asking for vaccine passports. Is this what you are asking for?
5: Um, look, it is an important first step. Uh, so in that regard, uh, we we feel content that the government is moving in the right direction um, and, and you're right, this is something that we've been waving the flag for, um, for nearly two months now, uh, both behind the scenes and, and as public facing as we could possibly be. Um, so it, it's an important first step, um, but we, we certainly hope there's more to come. Uh,
1: more to come in, in terms of uh, the places where you need the vaccine passport. What do you mean by more to come? Well,
5: I, I mean, and we can go into this as much detail as you'd like, but um, it. it It falls short uh, of what we've been advocating for in a few different ways. First of all, uh, the timing um, is is taking longer uh, to get to that QR code actual vaccination passport or accreditation. It, it's going to take some time. So that is going to cause delays um, and it won't be as effective as we'd hope it would be um, for a number of businesses that just happen to be starting, frankly, in in the September timeframe. Um, there's also a great worry, and we're hearing about this more and more now on, uh, on various news segments, but the lack of uniformity across non-essential business um, so it's, it's mandated in in the essential businesses that the government has indicated, and it's not for others. So that's going to cause uh, confusion, but also place a lot of stress, uh, strain, and responsibility on the shoulders of um, store owners, business owners who are not on the list. Um, and I could go on, but, okay, but those, well, are, those are two gaps.
1: Thank you. Um, uh Let's bring in Dr. Vaisman. From a doctor's point of view, what do you think of this?
6: I think uh, it's a good start. Um, As as was mentioned, there's still more that needs to be done in order to make the system work better and also to consider other settings where uh, vaccination would be necessary. The important thing, one one of the important limitations to note with this is that it doesn't apply to the employees of these uh, places, it applies to the people who are patrons. So the restaurants, the bars, the nightclubs, sports fitnesses It's just the patrons. So, I mean, it, it's a good start, but, you know, there's some high-risk areas and some other features, which would be nice to see.
1: Donna Dewar, uh, you are a restaurant owner, which means you're going to be the person implementing this. Uh, how is it going to work for you? Well, we well, first of all, we're glad the government is taking the first step uh, with your, your both Just a minute, Donna. We're having a really hard time hearing you. Um, okay. How's, is, this, is this better? Me, can yes, it's much better, yes.
7: Okay, I'm sorry.
1: Uh, I'm in the restaurant. It's quite
7: busy. Uh, I'm very pleased that the government's taken these first steps. I do think there's still a lot of uh, gray areas that will need to be sorted. Uh, our concern, of course, is if you want to eat on the patio, you don't need to show the passport. If you want to eat inside, you do. Uh, that, that's going to create issues for sure. The policing part of it, uh, I do think most people in Ontario are, are pleased with this step, so I don't foresee a lot of issues. We've managed to navigate through the masking issues, and I think we'll, we will be ready for that, uh, those challenges if they present themselves in the restaurant. But a very valid point that the doctor brings up, and that is our staff. Uh, we are currently taking a look at our policy about having all of our staff uh, fully vaccinated. Uh, certainly makes great sense that if your customers are, so should your staff.
1: Uh, what do you do now? Do you ask your staff? Is it an awkward thing? It is very awkward. Um, And, you know, we'd like the government to help with some protective
7: legislation. When we start to navigate these choppy waters, we ask people if they need any assistance booking any needs for vaccination. And that usually gives us a pretty good idea of of, um, what direction people have taken in, in terms of getting themselves vaccinated.
1: Uh, Lindsay Broadhead, uh, do you think that uh, the lack of a requirement for staff to be vaccinated, does that have anything to do with staff shortages that seem to be cropping up everywhere?
5: Um, I don't know. I mean, from our point of view, we, we've we actually heard for a long time the opposite. Um, so I have no doubt that that will come into play uh, in certain circumstances. But what we've been hearing for a long time is there was an assumption that it would be the uh, business owner who would want this the most. Um, but what we heard was actually the opposite, was that it was the employees who wanted uh, the protections. So, I mean, I, I'll defer uh, to our colleague here on the panel who, who owns a business and has uh, staff, but across many different industries and sectors, uh, we're hearing um, that it's, it provides great solace and comfort for the employee as well. Um, So it it seems to not be aligned with what workers actually want.
1: Yeah, It's interesting, uh, you know, because what, especially in the restaurant industry, so a lot of the workers are younger and uh, we've heard from younger people who think, oh, it's not a big deal for me. Uh, and um, I don't know the people who are against vaccines. I mean, we're hearing more from them these days. Donna, have you had any issues with those people?
7: We've had we've had a few incidents with people who are who are you know uh, against the vaccine the vaccine. Uh, we've had a couple of incidents. We, we try not to play into the, into the noise because that's what they're looking for. As I said earlier, I think most people uh, in Ontario and across the country are more interested in moving through this pandemic uh, and getting us to a better place to live with it if it's endemic. Uh, and as far as our staff goes, we want our staff to be vaccinated, fully vaccinated. We've worked with vaccine hunters and and have done our best to give people time off and and help them so i i I, um we just have to be very careful about you know legislative protection as employers that we're not crossing any boundaries that could come back to to haunt us
1: dr vaisman what about the timelines on this? How do you think that will play into it? It doesn't take effect till September 22nd. Today, we saw a huge increase in cases. Uh, we've seen bad modeling that we're going to get to later in the show. Uh, and and it's going to be a while, as Lindsay pointed out, before we get those QR codes.
6: Yeah, it's unfortunate that there was a delay in this announcement because this is something that was likely inevitable, given the overwhelming support across Canada and across Ontario. And the thing is, is that, of course, this measure can provide protection for people because you're mandating vaccination, protecting staff, protecting patrons. But the other, of course, measure or the other effect of this kind of measure is that it encourages vaccination, you'd hope, from individuals who want to participate in these activities. So those who are sitting on the fence, you know, you'd bring them over to convince them to be vaccinated. But as you said, because the projections now are not looking great for this coming September and October, if this measure was installed earlier, we would have seen that perhaps a surge from vaccination and better protection. You know we've been sitting at 82-80% for such a long time. If this had been done earlier, maybe we would have seen that bump sooner. So it is unfortunate.
1: Uh, And Dr. Vaisman, again, I mean, we saw stricter mandates from healthcare and hospitals. In particular, I mean, what would you recommend to businesses because businesses are being told, hey, you can do more?
6: It's, a, it's an interesting question because not all businesses are the same in terms of their risk. So certainly there's some items on that list that was announced yesterday, which you would definitely consider to be high risk settings like nightclubs, strip clubs, uh, certain restaurants, And then other places where they're wide open or more outdoor settings where it's probably not as relevant. So I think every business owner needs to look at their own setting and think about what this measure doesn't apply, like the the staff vaccination and think about all those variables that you mentioned earlier and and think about the risks uh, associated with their specific business setup.
1: Lindsay and Donna, you know, uh, Lindsay brought up uh, the, uh, you know, or Donna brought up the dichotomy, you can be on the patio unvaccinated, uh, but not in the restaurant. And uh, interestingly, when I was going through social media, I saw, you know, questions. What does that mean? Can somebody sitting on the patio unvaccinated Use the washroom. I mean, uh, are 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 these the kinds of things that will bedevil restaurant and other business owners?
7: <laughs> well as a restaurateur, I'm I'm going to say yes. And it will uh you know, it will require our own set of uh rules and regulations and protocols that will work best for our business and it may not sit well with everybody, but we feel it will will sit well with most people and and we'll work through it if we need to. Uh,
1: uh Lindsay, uh, how do your uh, members feel about essentially being being the people to enforce this?
5: Um, well uh, it, and there's, as uh, as the doctor said, there's many different kinds of businesses. So we know that sixty two percent of our small and medium-sized businesses say they plan to uh, make uh, vaccinations mandatory. Uh, we certainly seen a lot of the larger uh, businesses uh, insurance companies etc coming out with uh, certain announcements uh, when it comes to the uh, the smaller non-essential business it's um, it's there's a disproportionate amount of uh, responsibility put on individual business owners for this um, From our perspective if we if we take a step back and look to the big picture, our collective goal should be uh, First and foremost, ensuring people are safe uh, and feel secure because they're two sides of the same coin, right? You you need people actually to feel secure to go out, uh, and then they actually have to be there. Uh, and and the second piece is, frankly, our economy, um, keeping these businesses open, um, all of whom have said kind of uniformly, a another lockdown is just not an option to stay open. So I worry that uh, these inconsistencies are going to really reduced basically, our ability to reach these goals, uh, and it's going to provide undue confusion. Uh,
1: Dr. Vaisman, I've heard from people on the science table saying, you know, basically there's not going to be another lockdown no matter what. Do you agree with that?
6: Um, you know, I guess I guess it all depends on the numbers. It seems less likely to have occurred, and uh, some of the projections that came out yesterday were very concerning, and definitely you would need a lockdown if some of those came true. But I think it all depends on whether we're able to achieve the vaccination numbers that were estimated, sort of, you know, higher than 85%, which seems more likely now. And also, you know, lockdown can mean uh, more, like more restrictions than what we're on now, but not full-blown like we were in March 2020. So right now, for example, we're in stage three, but we could move, I think it would be reasonable to expect to move back to a stage two or even a stage one. But it seems less likely that we'll do a full-blown lockdown like we had in the very beginning.
1: And do you see more restrictions on unvaccinated people? I mean, it, all the people, almost all, all the cases are people who are not vaccinated or not fully vaccinated.
6: Exactly. So not only are those individuals uh, unfortunately going to hospital and unfortunately dying, but they are also contributing to transmission to vaccinated individuals. So, you know, do I see the restrictions rising? I, I think at this point, the tolerance for unvaccinated people has vastly decreased, as you've talked about in the past. And also these measures, as I mentioned earlier, are one way you can try to kind of not really pressure, but try to convince those individuals that this is now, now really is it. You have to get vaccinated if you want to participate in anything outside your home. Uh,
1: tell really me something. Honest. This is something I have wanted to know about it. And again, is like from social media. I mean, we saw some anti-vaxxers demonstrating at hospitals the other day. And um, you know, the the healthcare workers are looking at this while they are struggling and and taking care of the other unvaccinated people who are sick with this. I mean, how do you feel about that?
6: Yes, yeah, it's, it's very hard to wrap your head around that. Such a level of denialism. Um it it takes like a lot of mental gymnastics not to look at the reality and see what's going on around you. I mean, even if you want to be completely selfish, you could just see that not getting vaccinated leads to lockdowns. If you, if you want to have all those things back, you really, just from that selfish point of view, is one good reason to get vaccinated. It's very hard to understand how people can not believe the facts, not believe the reality, the footage, everything we've seen. It's, it's, I can't explain it.
1: But how do you feel about treating them? and How do other healthcare workers feel about it? It must be difficult. A-
6: absolutely, it's difficult, but uh, I think it's really important that we treat everyone with sympathy and respect, regardless of the personal decisions they've made. It's our duty as healthcare professionals to always put those things aside and just provide the best possible care we can, and of course, in doing so, also trying to convince themselves and other family members to get vaccinated. But yeah, it's a very frustrating thing to to watch happen.
1: Uh, I'm going to give the numbers out again. If people have comments on the vaccine passports, have they made you a little more comfortable with doing certain things? Are you worried about the holes in them? What do you think? 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. I am talking to Donna Dewar, who is the co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen. Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist at the University Health Network, and Lindsay Broadhead, Senior Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs at the Toronto Region Board of Trade. And, Lindsay, at the beginning of all of this, employers are very nervous, uh, were very nervous uh, about opening themselves legally uh, if they restricted people based on vaccination, does the level of the vaccine passports and everything else uh, give them some shade?
5: Um, <laughs> I always uh, am a little weary about speaking about legal matters on this, but my understanding is that uh, be- because um, the uh, the government has mandated this, is that it, uh, it does provide in that regard, for the businesses that um, that are part of the the non essential program, as it were, um, I still think there are some um, uh, reassurances that the governments need to provide for the non essential businesses who aren't part of the this current vaccination program or vaccination passport program.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I remember. You know. Uh, businesses really, really uh being very wary about mandating, you know, that an employee has to be vaccinated or you can't come in, uh, and especially if they couldn't work from home. Um, th- yeah, it's just uh, very difficult. I am going to take a call from Hope in Coburg. Hello, Hope. Hello, Libby. Go ahead. I am in favor, but nobody's answered
7: my question. What about us people that don't have phones? We don't have cell phones.
1: What do we do? Well, you've got your uh, little piece of paper that'll work for at least three weeks. And then? And, and then? Uh, does anybody have the answer to that, Lindsay? Lindsay? Uh, yep, you'll still be able to use your, uh, your paper. Again, the
5: government has to come out and clarify these points, but, uh, all indications are that they'll want to get as many people as possible on the digital platform. Um, and then, which is the second phase. So if we remember, they, they've come out with two proposed phases of how this will roll out. The first phase is your paper certification plus a government passport. And then the second is the QR code. So once we get to that point where the majority of people have the QR code, because frankly, it's more secure and it's easier to use. But for those of us who do not have uh, or choose not to have mobile devices, um, and these days I'm quite appreciative of that decision, where we're spending so much time with technology, um, you'll still be able to use your um, that phase one uh, interim solution, which is your paper and your government ID.
1: Thanks, Hi. Hope, for your Hi. call. Let's go to Mark in Cambridge. Hello, Mark. Thank you. Mark, are you I there? Love you.
3: Hi. I don't know what it what it matters to other people what other people are doing. Do no we need to be a busybody knows
1: folk? Uh, I'm not sure that you, you uh, I'm not sure what that was about. <laughs> people. Uh, we have a screener. And uh, you've got to be truthful to the screener about what you're calling about. I'm not sure what that was about. Uh, We are running out of time, though, so it's time to get uh, a last thought from our panelists. Uh, Let's begin with Donna Dewar. Uh, Well, I I concur with
7: everything that... uh, your your panel has said today, Libby, and I will say uh, one thing that is a great concern for us, and this is something that we try to educate our team here at the restaurant who are, are working very hard and also working with people, Who do take their masks off and eat and drink and talk. But I, I always remind them of the impact that this is having on our healthcare system and that our healthcare system in Canada is a privilege. And, you know, we can only put so much pressure on the individuals who work in that system and, and the system itself and, and be mindful of that and their actions will play out on on this um, a great privilege of, of universal healthcare that we have here in Canada. Dr. Vaisman.
6: I think it's good that the, these passports have come out. Unfortunately, it was a little bit too late, and also uh, even the federal government coming out with something like this would be very helpful so that we can have something unified across the country.
1: And Lindsay Broadhead, you get the last word.
5: Uh, two things, if I may, to echo what Donna just said. Um, uh, we're, we're very lucky to have this healthcare system, and I would love to see all levels of government be abundantly clear in their communications what our actual goal is. Um, and if it is to keep people out of the ICU, let's all double down on that. Uh, and it ties into my final point, which is I hope not to, um, <laughs> rainbows and unicorns, uh, as my kids would say, but at the end of the day, we should all be in this together, fighting COVID together. Um, and that's the only way that we're going to get through this. The, the greater we divide, the quicker we're going to fall.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Lindsay Broadhead, Dr. Alon Vaseman and Donna Dewar. Appreciate your time. Thank you, thank you so much. We are going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we are going to drill down on those modeling numbers that dr vaseman was alluding to uh, they are not pretty and kids are heading back to school next week we'll have that when we return before we go to break the numbers 416-360-0740 toll free one 866 4740
0: you are listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. The latest modeling numbers came out last night and they are sobering. They show that in a worst case scenario, daily cases could exceed 9,000 sometime in October. The middle level projection shows cases around 4,000 daily. And in a lower range scenario, The good news would be daily cases around or below 500, and to achieve this, we would have to raise the number of fully vaccinated people and decrease our contacts, and as we said, this comes as we're seeing the highest case counts in a long while, 865 today, and Experts have warned there will be more after school starts next week. I'm joined by Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University and a member of Ontario's Science Advisory Table. Dr. Evans, thanks so much for being with us.
8: Thanks for having me, Libby. So
1: what do you, what do you make of these numbers and what kind of a burden do they put on all of us?
8: Well, I, I think, you know, uh, you really laid out what the numbers mean. We've got a worst-case scenario, which uh, in most of the modelling that we've ever done on the table has never been uh, happened. But that's where things could go if people really don't do their part. And uh, I think the positive message I see is that in the past when we've seen these models, the worst-case scenario has been averted because I think Ontarians uh, embrace Uh, virtually all Ontarians embrace, you know, getting vaccinated and doing your part in terms of maintaining public health uh, measures that help to reduce transmission. So, uh, it's, uh, it's sobering when you look at that really high worst case scenario. Uh, but, you know, the range of scenarios is quite broad as, um, those of, uh, of your listeners who have actually looked at the graph. Uh, and as you point out, we may be able to stay steady. We've seen, you know, I think in the last few weeks, a bit of a bulge that happened likely towards the early part of August uh, that up until today, at least, was showing some signs of of sort of starting to flatten out. But we'll have to watch and see how that seven-day running average is. Right now, it's at 728 new cases per day as a seven-day running average. Uh, and if we could keep it at that level and even go lower, that would be great.
1: Uh- Kids are going back to school. Those under 12 cannot be vaccinated. And, and, um, you know, I, I'm not sure about the rate of those over 12, but it's uh, as great as those, those of us who are older.
8: Uh, yeah, we're, I mean, we've got fairly good vaccination rates in the 12 to sort of 18-year-old age group, but you're right, they're nowhere near what we see, of course, particularly with older individuals. Um, schools are, are really um, a tough thing to sort out. It's a very divisive issue. There are those who line up saying schools are going to be the source of all the problem, and that's possible to see. But there's a lot of evidence that's emerging around the world that although schools can be challenging with measures that are put into place to control those numbers, especially vaccinating staff and teachers who go, especially to elementary schools where you can't vaccinate those children at the moment, uh, that will really help to temper things. So again, everybody has to do their part. We have to maintain those public health measures. And if you're not vaccinated, and I would add that the introduction of vaccine passports is going to drive up vaccination numbers. It has done that in almost every country it's been introduced. Uh,
1: Yeah, um, it has. And I guess we are all hoping for that. But it it seems to me, just from what I've seen around, that a lot of the people who are not vaccinated have no intention of getting vaccinated. I mean, there, there seems to be... You know, those on the fence seem to be a smaller number and those who are anti-vax or they say that they're against this vaccination, uh, they seem to be like there seems to be a lot of them. Well, I think
8: that's a little bit I'm going to offer my personal opinion here. I think that's overplayed. I think it's overplayed in the media. We know that, you know, in some places like the United States, uh, you know, those numbers are higher. But here in Canada, it's probably 8% or less of the population that's vehemently opposed to vaccines. The problem is is they're very vocal. They've learned how to use social media to amplify their voice. And I guess my my. Point is, I would like to see the media really not giving them as much oxygen as they give them. When I look at that, uh, you know, protest that happened yesterday in Toronto outside UHN, uh, there were maybe two or three hundred people there. Uh, There's six million people in the GTA, so if that's uh, all they could uh, drum up to cause this very sort of um, uh, demonstration kind of issues, they're a small group. And we just really have to be careful. Social media has allowed them to amplify their voice to appear to be a lot more than they actually are. Uh,
1: according to the modeling, uh, in addition to upping our vaccination numbers, we also have to reduce our contacts. So uh, I, I'd like a little more clarity on that. Uh, do you know, are, are people almost up to their normal contacts? Like, how, what, what are we supposed to do?
8: right so when we uh, when we put out the model yesterday uh, in in the things that happened we talked about uh, sort of trying to keep uh, you know rates of uh, 70% of pre-pandemic levels and we said that if we if we were able to Reduce uh, contacts to seventy percent of the pre-pandemic levels. We have pretty good control amongst all the age groups. There's a there's a nice graph that's uh, that's in the report yesterday. Um, if we go above that, above eighty percent of pre-pandemic levels with contacts, then we're going to see that really large jump in numbers. So, it's really a matter. I, I you know I, I can say that there was a lot of discussion about trying to go back to a stage two. Um, where we were at sort of in uh, you know June, July before we went to stage three, uh, that would probably have that effect. But right now I think we're we're kind of really uh, I think seeing and hoping that people are going to really uh, stick to what is essentially a, a very strict if uh, stage three and maybe a lot of people still continuing to do a sort of stage two uh, kind of limitation. If we do that, that's going to have that synergistic effect with that rising vaccine uptake uh, to really keep this wave dampened down.
1: Do you know where we're at now? I mean, I don't really know what percentage of pre-pandemic contacts I've had.
8: Uh, Right now, it looks like we're at about 70 to 75 percent. So it is a matter of kind of dropping that down. And of course, the worries that you see amongst people who are very expressive about dire consequences is that they feel that school's just going to increase that, and so there's no way to go back further. But we have the capacity to do it, and we need to do it. Um, You know, in in things with the schools, community prevalence is what drives uh, increasing rates in schools almost uh, primarily as the main factor. So uh, that's really why we have to continue to work at it amongst the people who can do this, which are the adults and stuff, uh, now that schools are open to... uh, push that forward. And I'm very optimistic because I've seen, for instance, here at my own university a huge uptake in full vaccination uh, when the university issued the mandates for it for people to be on campus. And those are now in the ninety percent range. And and my last point is we know that eighty three percent of people in Ontario have taken a first dose that are eligible for vaccine. We know that over ninety five percent of people who take a first dose will take a second dose. So that means that's where we're going to hit. And that's just around 2% lower than the 85% level that people really issued as a a sort of threshold that we'd like to meet. Uh,
1: Dr. Evans, we have less than a minute left. Uh, I don't know if you were able to listen to my last segment. I'm just back from holiday. I flew to BC and back on Air Canada. The airport was frightening, frightening, and as was the sardine situation on the plane and getting off the plane. Are you aware of that? And what are your thoughts?
8: Yeah, I've heard very similar stories, Libby, from some colleagues, uh, one of whom traveled out west, out in the west, particularly Alberta, Saskatchewan, to some extent B.C., uh, where there is a different uh, ethos, I think, I would guess to say, has really led to a lot more of that crowding. But here in Ontario, I, I think we are seeing it uh, when we go around to places that people are still masking well, uh, keeping numbers down. We're not seeing that same sort of push.
1: Oh, the, I, it, the crowding awesome was amazing. It was in the airport, zero social distancing, huge crowds.
8: Yeah, not not good, not good. So stay stay in Central Canada or Eastern (laughs) Canada.
1: (laughs) Okay, Dr. Gerald Evans, thank you so much for being with us. And people, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So please call back if we couldn't get your call or if this has sparked something else that you want to say. I am looking forward to it. And that's all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.